Welcome to IVF Tales, a podcast hoping to make the world of fertility treatment less lonely. We want to start conversations about different fertility journeys to empower your decisions and build a community that understands. Each week we will speak to someone whose journey to having a child has taken a little bit more than a few vodka cruises. We are your hosts, Tiffany and Amy. Today's episode, we're speaking to Emma about her fertility treatment. Um, so she suffers from endometriosis and do you want to jump in with the next one, Amy? <laughs> Adenomyosis. Please yeah, don't slaughter right. us if it's wrong. <laughs> it's a really hard word to say. I feel like endo, like you could say endo and people know what you're talking about, but I don't know what the abbreviation for. Maybe we could say, I'm just having a quick look so I can read it. Maybe we could say adeno, ad, adenone. I, yeah, I fucked that. <laughs> um, meiosis, I can say that, um, but yeah. I can't say the A-D-E. It's like anesthesis. And some of it's like silent too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wh- wh- who made these words up? Like. Jesus Christ. Um, Yeah, so she talks about that. Um, She also talks about how her husband, he was diagnosed with testicular cancer um, quite early on. So he had one testicle while they were trying to reproduce. Um, And that turned out to not be such a big issue. So she talks about that as well. Uh, she also talks about she had two early miscarriages um, naturally as well before they started their treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and she's now early, early on in the pregnancy. So yeah, so we'll have to up, get updates as she goes along. Um, she uh, Emma is also based in. Victoria, which was really interesting because she mentions that it was a legal thing to get a police background check, which I actually remember seeing on Facebook that they've stopped that now. So um, mm-hmm. you don't actually need to get a police check, but she still had to um, and had to do uh, a counselling session as well prior to starting treatment, which is a bit different to how we do things here in Queensland, I think. Yeah, and I think too you sort of covered that the counselling session, even though it's called a counselling session, is more like a mental check, mental health check to say that you're fit to do the process rather than are you okay, what can we do to help? Yeah, this is how you support can yourself. Can you cope with this? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, which oh, I don't know. I think it warrants more investigation. It's a bit of an interest of mine. All right, well, we hope you enjoy listening today to today's episode, guys. Thanks for joining us today on IVF Tales, Emma. No problem. Um, would you like to get us started just by telling us a little bit a little bit about yourself and who you are and where you're located and what you do? Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> my name is Emma. I'm originally from Auckland in New Zealand, um, but I'm now living in Melbourne with my husband, mm-hmm. um, who is from Melbourne. Um, I work for an airline as a trainer. Um, and I've been doing that for almost three years, and I was a flight attendant before that with the same company for um, two years um, before I started training. Um, I'm a little bit of a cliche when I first started flying, about four months after that, um, I met my now husband, who was a pilot, of course, <laughs> um, 
and then I moved to Melbourne about six months after meeting him. And we moved in together straight away and we've been married for six months yesterday. Whoops, forgot about that one. Um, <laughs> and um, been together for four and a half years. Yeah. You don't have an accent at all. I only heard it when you said no, six just then. It, yeah. it comes and goes. When I'm with my family who are in Perth, um, it comes out around other Kiwis. But when I'm, um, you know, around other people that are you know, Australian, I'm always kind of just going into that. Because we did live in Sydney for six years um, prior to moving back to Auckland. So I spent a lot of my um, years in Australia. Mm-hmm. Awesome. If you want to just get us started with your fertility story and give us some background, um, when did you yeah. start thinking about it and all of that sort of stuff? So when I was, this is going um, way back, um, when I was 20, I had a laparoscopy um, because I had a lot of um, pain and I was diagnosed with endometriosis. Uh, They shouldn't give me a stage or anything, um, but there was quite a lot of it. And also adenomyosis, which is um, similar to endometriosis, but it's in the um, uterus. Sort of in the muscle wall, um, so that does cause a lot of pain, and there's nothing that they can do with adenomyosis treatment wise. So, um, I was put on the pill and you know, back to back, no periods because that's what apparently made it worse. Um, so that was back in 2016. A um, couple of years later, so it was end of 2018, um, we wanted to sort of, I was getting pain again, so um, my doctor sent me to um, our, what he was our fertility specialist, but that's more of a gynecologist, and um, we're going and expecting that he was going to say, yep, we'll do another lap, but he did all these tests, um, checked my age levels, checked my husband's um, sperm counts, and just said, he said, I want to put you into menopause, with the horrible injections, or you can start trying for a baby. So we decided then that we would start trying. I actually went away for work for a month um, after that, so we sort of didn't start trying until... So that was October 2018. We really didn't start actively trying until the February of 2019. Um, in... In... Um, in April of 2019, um, we got our first positive pregnancy test. I thought, yes, this is awesome. Um, we got this in our you know, first or second go. This is awesome. Uh, the test was very faint. So I went to the doctor, got a blood test. I had to go to New Zealand for work. Um, and then I started to bleed. Um, blood test wasn't that high. The HCG was there and that was... So heartbreaking going through that because I got told on my 23rd birthday that I was miscarrying, you know, really early chemical pregnancy. And that was probably, it was really hard because we had just started trying, got so much hope. You know, when you see that positive pregnancy test, your whole mind just changes and your whole perspective on, on everything just changes. Um, so that was really heartbreaking, but we just kept on going, kept trying. 
Um, in August of last year, I went and saw my um, specialist again. Um, he's now my obstetrician. Um, he suggested going and back and seeing our fertility specialist um, to start IVF because of everything that's happened. Like I've got all my endometriosis and anomyosis. He said it was about six months at that stage, I think, that we had been trying. And he said that if you're not pregnant now, there's not a lot of hope for you really to get pregnant naturally. And that was, again, so heartbreaking to find out that you're, you know, as a woman, you can't get pregnant and um, that you're going to have to have help or it's going to be really tough. So we went back and saw um, our fertility specialist. He did a lot of tests. So we, when we went back and saw him, we did um, what's called a post-coital test. It was quite strange. So what happens is you... Um, he gives you a time to have sex the night before you go and see him. Um, you can't, like, wash out anything. You can have a shower. Um, then you go in the next day quite early. He has an ultrasound to see when you're going to ovulate. So they sort of time it with uh, about a, two days before you are supposed to ovulate. And then he takes a sample of your um, cervical mucus to see, and he looks under a microscope to see if the sperm are... Uh, normal, so just it's really testing if your uh, like cervical mucus is killing off the sperm. So kind of everything was fine with that, and I was ovulating normally. So I was having blood tests as well to check that I was ovulating. After that, he said, "Well, that's normal. So obviously that's not your issue." So the next step was getting a tubal patency test, which was Possibly the most painful thing. I've never given birth, but it was the most painful thing that I've ever experienced in my life. My husband was in Singapore for work, unfortunately, so I had to go through it by myself. So what that entails is you go to an ultrasound place. Um, you, uh, They do like a normal internal ultrasound, which is fine. I'm sure we're all used to um, the <laughs> internal ultrasounds. Um, but what they do after that is they put a catheter into your um, up your cervix and into your uterus and put fluid into the uterus and see um, it go through um, your tube to see if they are blocked. And just that, because of my endometriosis and the adenomyosis, it was, I was in tears, screaming the nurse, <laughs> holding my hand, I'm sure my mum broke it. It was so painful, um, but they said it was totally normal. There was um, nothing blocking, um, nothing happening between then. Um, so, you know, totally normal, which again, I thought, oh, this is great. Maybe I'll just need progesterone support or something like that. Um, in the October of last year, we got married. The next week, I went to work, went back to work. Um, I was in Sydney for work actually and did a pregnancy test and it was positive again and it was so great. Um, after I did it like a day and then obviously the next day I did another test and 
you typically they're meant to get darker for the first two days they do get darker and then they just stay the same so i called my doctor i flew home from sydney i got a blood test i was in so much pain so i kind of knew what was happening to me um i got a blood test on a friday we ended up in the woman's hospital that Saturday just because of the pain and he said well there's no point doing another blood test but he did tell me my result and it was only 11 but my progesterone was 10 so that could have been one of my issues um after that on that Monday um I did start bleeding and then my had another blood test and it was down to five so we knew what was happening and again that was so heartbreaking I was a little bit further than my last chemical pregnancy but just after all these tests and finding out that you know everything's normal and then I can't hold a pregnancy more than five weeks was just so so heartbreaking so after all of that we went back to the doctor I had the chill pregnancy test results I'd had another miscarriage or chemical pregnancy we went back and he said all right everything is normal which I thought was a good thing, but it's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing because why have we been trying for close to a year and there's no pregnancy or no viable pregnancy or, or birth <laughs> happening? So he said the only way I think you can get pregnant is through IVF. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was really tough um, having to go through that and seeing my friends get pregnant and pregnancy announcements on Facebook were the most hated things of my life. I found out uh, in January that one of my friends at work was pregnant and I just, I broke down. I was, it's such a weird mix of being so happy, but also just being so upset on the, the path you were given. And I know everyone's on their own path, but at that moment I just felt so horrible that, you know, she could do that and I had to go through IVF and all these injections and all this really invasive stuff to try and get to get to where she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so in the, um, it was October, we signed up for IVF, um, filled out all the paperwork. We did our, so in Victoria, um, it's law that you have to get a, I think Danielle Andrews has just changed it, but when we did it, it was law to get a police check which seems bananas to me. We had to get a police check and people, you know, that are, can just have babies. But anyway, we did the police check. Um, you had to do a nursing appointment to go to all the medications, um, an appointment with the PLA or patient liaison advisor, I think it is called, um, all the money that you're going to spend. And... Um, also, in Victoria, you have to legally do a counselling appointment. And that was really scary, but it's just all things about consent. What about, what if, um, you know, my husband Lockie dies? Can I use embryos that have in storage of iodine? Can he use embryos that have in storage of surrogate or all of those types of things? What do we want to do with embryos that we have frozen after we've completed our families and all that sort of stuff? Um, we were kind of quite prepared for that because we have friends that have gone through it. So we kind of knew what questions we were going to be asked. Um, that was in December. And obviously with shutdowns, IVF clinics, they don't start any new cycles. So we started um, IVF in January. I can't remember. I think it was January the 
vaccine test first. We started our first injection, so it was quite exciting, quite daunting. So I was, I donate blood, donate plasma. You know, I don't mind having my blood taken, but giving myself needles, any like injections, I freak out. Mm-hmm. So it was quite a proud moment for myself to be able to give myself an injection. So um, day uh, day three of my period, we went in to see my fertility specialist. He just did an ultrasound to see how many follicles I had uh, at that you know first stage of my cycle, um, and sort of what medication to give me because of my age. I'm 23, uh, and going through all of this stuff that he thought that I would be a really high responder. He was only going to give me a lower dose, but he saw I didn't have a lot of follicles on that day three, so he put it to a standard dose. Um, then we had a nurse pick up the meds, um, went to see, the, uh, they help you with your first um, injection at the clinic that we went to. So um, she helped me prepare the pen because I was on Gona West, so um, I don't know if anyone's been on Gona West before, but you just mm-hmm. um, turn the top and it has your dosage on it, put the needle on, and I did it myself. And for me, that was a really proud moment that, you know, I could do that. And it was, you know, I was kind of excited the next day, like, yeah, I can smash this. This is going to be so good. So um, we started that. I think I did about 11 days of um, stim. So after, I think on day six or seven, I started for Galutran. That was a bit of an experience doing that injection. <laughs> it was a lot bigger than the Um, But I, you know, got my way. Um, on a Saturday, I got a call that my trigger was about nice. We had a horrible trigger time of 12.40 a.m. on the sort of Sunday morning. Um, so we had to get up for that, which was fine. Um, I had my egg collection on a Monday. Um my doctor was actually on leave and I had another doctor from the same clinic do my egg collection and first egg collection, didn't really know what to expect. It was quite strange when the doctor came in, didn't introduce themselves, just said, all right, we're doing this today. Have you had this before? No. Uh, then he said, okay, there's a bit of risk, blah, 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 here, left. Didn't say anything. So I felt really, oh, am I just... You know, this is so strange. If, you know, if I was a doctor and meeting someone for the first time in a surgery, I'd be like, oh, you know, hi, my name is. Um, so that was quite strange for me. But anyway, I went in. Um, I was put under a twilight sedation. So I had the best sleep of my life. Um, then we got 28 eggs, which was quite awesome because my last scan before trigger, I think I only looked like I was going to get about 15 to 20 um, so I was really, really happy when I woke up, the doctor came and he said, we got 28. And I was like, really? <laughs> I think I was flying out of my mind. Um, then I asked the nurse when the doctor went away, I said, did he really say 28? Because I was just thought I was dreaming. Um, then the next day we got a call saying out of our 28 eggs, I think 17 had fertilized. Uh, which was really great. Uh, on we did a fresh transfer on the eighth of February this year. Uh, so it was a five day transfer. So I had my collection on the 
Monday and transfer was on a Saturday. I started the lovely progesterone pessaries on the Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone knows that though. Um, <laughs> on the Saturday, we had a tr- our transfer. Um, again, it wasn't my doctor because he was on leave. Um, and we found out we only, we had about four that they were still looking at embryos. Um, so we transferred our clinic grade. Our grade was for a B. Um, it wasn't a hatching blastocyst yet. Grades can mean a whole lot of different things, so mm-hmm. may not mean a lot to anyone else. Um, but we still have the picture of our little embryo on the fridge. Mm-hmm. Um, then it was such a strange procedure. And back then, my husband could come in um, to the little room. So you just get in there, take your pants off. Um, they put like a green thing over your bits and the, um the embryologist goes, confirm your name. They show you the beautiful embryo on the screen, come in, and it goes, all right, thank you, done. Off you go. It's <laughs> like five minutes. It's crazy. Um, and they're like, yep, you can hop up. Off you go. Um, I think it was the Monday or the Tuesday we got a email from the lab and we only got one frozen embryo out of 28 eggs, you know, so many fertilised and having, I think it was four or five that I was still looking at on at transfer day. So I was really upset about it and I had a huge cry because mm-hmm. one embryo, all of that work, obviously there was one in me. We didn't know if that was going to work yet. And having one frozen was terrifying and I thought, Oh my god! Like, what if this doesn't work? What if, what if you know my eggs, your sperm? What if they don't create good embryos and it doesn't work? So I think that was about two or three days past transfer, and I wasn't going to test. I told myself, okay, I'm not going to test. I'm not going to test. But after hearing that we only got one embryo, I just thought I just want to test because I want to know. I wish I don't know what it was. It just for me, I just felt that I wanted to know that either this embryo worked or didn't sort of prepare myself for what may come later, like if we had to do more skin cycles or mm-hmm. transfer this frozen embryo and things like that. That was quite scary for me. Um, however, I tested on so day four past transfer, I tested in the morning, and there was a little shadow of something. So I thought, oh, probably nothing, probably just an indent or something. That night, I think my husband was working, and I tested, and there was a line, and it was quite well, it strong, and it was a lot stronger than the morning, and I just had the biggest cry. It was such a strange, um, obviously fertility is such a strange rollercoaster of emotions, but going from the day before having a huge cry about, you know, what if this doesn't work? You got one frozen, such a terrifying time, to the next day being so so happy that this one may have worked. So over the next few days, I kept testing. The lines kept getting darker and darker and darker. And I thought, this actually might be it. What if this is going to work? And because of the two chemical pregnancies I had in the past, pregnancy after loss is probably one of the hardest things to go through um, because you're just constantly anxious that something is going to happen, any pain. I had really, really, really strong cramps that would 
almost make me faint or vomit quite early on. Um, that's due to my adenomyosis that I'd like to found out. Um, but those, I thought, oh, I'm definitely losing this baby. It's just, it terrified me to the core. And even my husband didn't really get excited because he'd got excited before, so he didn't really get excited until really after the scan um, or you know, the blood tests and things like that. So um, kept testing, kept testing. Thought, yes, this is exciting, but I kind of held back getting too excited about being pregnant. So my 10 days post-transfer, I went in for my blood test and my result was 172. So the nurse called me, um, she said, I got really good news. Your um, HCG is 172. And so congratulations, you're pregnant. So I, I booked in my six-week scan with my fertility specialist. I think I was six weeks, three days when I booked it, um, when I booked it for. Um, but then I asked for another blood test just to make sure my levels are rising correctly because I was just so worried. Um, so I had a blood test exactly a week after and my levels were 1997. Oh, they had okay. gone up. Yeah. They had doubled correctly. Um, <clears throat> sorry, uh, throughout the week. So that gave me a lot more hope. Then we had to wait another week. Um, and go and get um, our scan with our fertility specialist. That was really, really exciting. I'm seeing um, heartbeat, hearing a heartbeat, seeing our baby on a screen was the best feeling. It was just amazing. And um, I booked in with my obstetrician who I had been seeing. He was just monitoring me for a few years with all my endo and things like that. So I booked in my 10-week appointment. The next day, I got a call from his room saying, oh, hi, blah, 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 from blah, blah, blah room. Um, we just got a note saying that um, the doctor wants to see you this week. So he got me in at six weeks and he has been seeing me every week um, and up until 12 weeks just to monitor me because of my history. So that's really nice that I have that support around me um, and having those doctors that really care for me and really, um, you know, know how anxious I might be feeling and really are supportive. So now I'm 10 weeks, six days pregnant. I did my um, NIPT test yesterday, so we should get the results next week mm-hmm. and uh, you know we are so excited and we started buying a few things um, and I really I've the only probably only the last week I've just thought oh my gosh this is it this is going to be our baby so um, I'm due 25th of October this year all going well so obviously just taking it a week at a time but um, it is so exciting to be able to see baby growing um, each week when we go and see our obstetrician. That's really my story. I have so many questions. I'm sure Tiff does too. <laughs> right. um, that especially like the scan, seeing the scans every week, especially in the first trimester of pregnancy, would be really interesting because the baby changes so much. So I think that oh must be God. a really beautiful yeah. experience for you. Yeah. That's gone from like uh, just a lump on a screen. To yeah. an actual baby. Yeah. Um, but it's quite funny. Yesterday, 
um, I'll send you guys a photo, but baby is looking right at us. So arms on the side, baby's like, hello. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was quite funny. Yeah. Tiff, did you want to ask some questions? Because I know you've probably got some, so go for it. Yeah. So I've been taking lots of notes. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're going so through I it so quickly it's... and I'm like, oh, 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 yeah, got to remember that one. <laughs> so I think something from your um, questionnaire that we didn't haven't covered yet. So Lockie, yeah. your husband, um, mm. he had some issues himself, didn't he? Yeah, he did. So when he, yeah, so when he, he was just about to turn 21, he had, so this is before I knew him, um, he had testicular cancer. So he he pretty much went to the doctor the next day. He was in surgery. Um, they caught it really early. It was quite an aggressive type, but it hadn't spread to any other parts of his body, which was really good. So he they took out his right testicle. So he has one. Um, so the first time we're about to have sex, is that all oh, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> His having one testicle didn't impact his sperm count at all because I mean I'm not aware of the male anatomy that well that good but yeah. it didn't impact his count at all. No, it didn't. Um, the, well, the doctor was quite surprised. He goes, "Oh, we have one that you know it's surprising that it's not my mum's friend. Her husband had very very similar situation to Lockie, but has a bit older." And so he only had one testicle as well. And his sperm, because there was so much in there, was sort of didn't know how to swim properly. Yeah. Um, so they kind of were kind of just like running into each other and going in circles. So I guess it's really different on how each, you know, each person that has one testicle has gone through that, has maybe has 
quite different circumstances, but um, in our situation, it didn't seem to affect his count or motility or anything like that. Wow. We're quite lucky. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm. Um, so you mentioned that basically your fertility journey, I suppose, if you really wanted to earmark it, started when you were 20 and you were diagnosed with endo and what's the other one? I can never pronounce it. I know, it's so um, adenomyosis. Adenomyosis. So yeah. when, you know, you had had painful periods and things like that, had you, um, in the lead up to that? Is that what required that investigation? Yeah, so it wasn't just painful periods. It was pain throughout, like, my whole cycle. So yeah. um, I was on the pill, but it was just pain all the time. So it was... Um, pain sort of on my right and left and my uterus is always cramping throughout my whole cycle, mm-hmm. um, which I later found out was not normal. My periods were just debilitating. I would take really strong medication for them. When I was, when I was, I got my period when I was 13. So from then I was at boarding school in New Zealand and my friends, wouldn't understand why I was off school for my period because they're like, oh, periods aren't that bad. No one, you know, you don't get that bad of cramps. But I was just out for the count for at least three to five days of my seven-day periods and it was just horrible. And I sort of always, you know, you're sort of always told, oh, period cramps, normal. Everyone gets period cramps. But later on in life now, you kind of, figure it out that that's not normal when you're there's such massive pain not just three period but your whole cycle is, is not normal and that should not be happening for you so mm-hmm. when I went to the finally when I saw GP they're like oh I don't know send you for an ultrasound and ultrasounds you can't see endometriosis mm-hmm. um you can't see anything so and I knew something else was wrong so I kept pursuing it kept going to the doctor's Finally, one doctor was like, okay, I'll refer you to a gynecologist. And the first thing she said was like, I think you might have, she said, might have in Metro, she said, I might have, from my symptoms, I might have adenomyosis as well because I had uterine cramps throughout my whole cycle. Um, it's funny, when I was, I think I was about 14, 15, um, my the doctor at my boarding school I hadn't had sex and she tested me for an STI because I had these cramps in my uterus. What? So she thought, oh, test you for an STI. I was like, but why? <laughs> my life this can't be happening. Um, so no one really believed me. So when I finally went to the gynecologist, she goes, okay, we'll we'll get one for a lap and um, have a look. And yeah, I just. I didn't really see her much after the surgery. I woke up and I was in a daze after the general anesthetics. And she goes, yep, we found endometriosis. And then she didn't say anything else. Um, so the two weeks between that and going to see her, I, it was quite an unknown time. Um, and I remember having a massive cry. <laughs> oh, he was my boyfriend and now husband. Um, you know, saying, you know, what if having kids is going to be really hard because Endometriosis is usually associated with infertility. So um, that was quite a hard time and she explained it all to me and 
went through my diagnosis of endometriosis and also the adenomyosis, which is the one that she, she wasn't to worry about the endo because she got it all, but it was adenomyosis that they can't do anything about. Um, and that does cause quite a lot of pain and inflammation. And some people with adenomyosis at quite an advanced stage, their uterus is really, really bulky. Some people... The uterus is as big as it would be when you're about 15, 16 weeks pregnant. So that's how um, how much it can affect. And the only cure really for adenomyosis is a hysterectomy. Wow. How did you feel being, like you said you had a bit of a cry to your um, husband at the time. Um, yeah. How did you feel, like did it really sort of hit you that, it might impact your fertility or was that not till later when you sort of started to try? Um, yeah, so it hit me then that it might have an impact on fertility. And look, I was only 20. My husband was 23. Um, so that was really out of our minds of trying for a baby. We'd only been living together for about nine months at that stage mm-hmm. um, and been together for almost a year. So that was really... Like fine on the track with kids, but you know we knew that we were going to be together, and it was just really hard uh, for me just finding out that you know having kids might not be an easy ride for us, whenever that may be. So we sort of made the decision to start earlier than oh, there's no normal time to have kids now. You know everyone's having kids at different times, so but we did sort of. Um, decided to try a little bit earlier than we sort of had planned to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's why, yeah. But it's good that we, we're so glad and grateful that we did start trying when we did because, you know, we could have never anticipated um, the journey we had to go through to get our baby. Yeah. I think that's a smart move on your, your part there. Like it's better to yeah. just get started as soon as you can and everything lines up for you. Yeah, sure. Um, Tiff, did you have any more questions? Um, so your when you were doing your treatment, were you still air hosting or had you moved into your training role at that point? Uh, I had moved into my air training role, so um, do you mean for IVF treatment? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I was training. So luckily I had told my manager that um, I wasn't able to fly and I got a note from our Australia specialist saying, that I wasn't able to travel for work. We did do quite a lot of travel um, to go and train in different places. Uh, because the last, the two times I did have miscarriage of my chemical pregnancies, I was away for work and flying. So, you know, that I don't think that contributed at all, but, you know, you just, that stuff goes through your mind. So um, I got a note from my doctor saying, no traveling. That so was at home a lot of the time. And um, she was so flexible with, um, days off, and I got my scans always early in the morning, so it was quite easy to manage. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, did you did you tell many people in your lives, like other than work, that you were doing IVF? Um, I was quite open about it. We did tell off his parents, um, but not sort of specific because I didn't want to be too. Pressure, especially when we transfer an embryo. Um, I tell my mum everything, so <laughs> I told them. Um, we, I told a lot of people at work just so that they would understand if I was 
you know, in a shitty mood <laughs> saying because the drugs make you crazy um, or, you know, if I need a day off here and there. So, and I think it definitely helps telling my workmates because they are like a family to me and it really helped having their support around me during that time. And also with that, I did tell them each time I had a miscarriage and I think for me, how I cope with things is telling people what's going on and I think that having support around you is so important. So if you do feel comfortable telling people about what's going on in your life, then do because it just makes the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. I think it works to normalise too what's happening and, and like even just the word miscarriage I feel like it's really just unsupportive of women because it sort of makes it sound like you are, I don't know I just don't like the word you know I feel like it yeah I'm saying yeah I can't I can't explain why I don't like it but I just I think it's just not indicative of actually what's happening um you know so I think it the more you talk about it the more you normalize it and you know obviously if you're open people would feel like they can approach you and, and ask you questions that they probably couldn't ask other people or yeah, that's so right, and I, I'm such a big advocate for normalising things like miscarriage because one in four women will go through that. Mm-hmm. Some people might not even know, a lot of people do know, and it can be you know, at totally different stages. And normalising things like IVF as well, but because I did normalise it so much at work, um, a friend of mine uh, two, three weeks ago um, came to me and told me that she had suffered a miscarriage at five weeks and, you know, asked me how she got through it. And then maybe a week ago, she texted me, we've been working from home the last couple of weeks. You know, she said, I've just found out my um, brother and sister-in-law are pregnant. I feel so upset and hurt, but so excited. How do you deal with it? And I said to her, look, it's not going to get easier. Um, I said, just feel those feelings because they're completely normal. So... I felt really happy that someone could come to me and ask me those questions because when I went through that of having people close to me being pregnant, I didn't have anyone that I could talk to or had been through exactly what um, I was going through. So it was quite nice to help someone else out um, through you know that really hard time in her life. Mm-hmm. I think even the words chemical pregnancy, you know, like it sort of makes it sound Mm -hmm. like, oh, was I even like really pregnant? And it's kind of like, well, yeah, you were pregnant and you are suffering a miscarriage. Like that's, that's what it is. Um, And I feel like. I know. The doctors go, oh, it's just a chemical pregnancy. I'm like, yeah, but there was an embryo and it implanted in me and it didn't work. So I would say I was pregnant. And you produced HCG to receive a positive pregnancy test. So exactly. Yeah, so you were pregnant. And, like, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, having experienced it, it's just it's really frustrating me because it's kind of like in any attempt to minimise what you're going through, um, it just doesn't – it's not helpful and it's not healthy. So I think, yeah, like just the terminology is quite clinical and it's just, yeah, not really supportive, I don't think. so. No, I agree. Um, so just, you know, talking about IVF and you said you've been quite open with um, everyone mm-hmm. in your life about it, how do you think, um, you know, your fertility journey has impacted your relationships? So with your husband, Lockie, and, and you know, your friendships and your family and things like that. 
Um, I think with my husband, I think not just IVF, but I think the whole fertility journey has really impacted our sex life, sex life, if anything. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, anyone that's gone through trying to conceive, it becomes kind of like a chore. Mm -hmm. So you kind of take the fun out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the time, um, I feel like that we're, apart from that, I feel like that we are closer as a couple because of what we have gone through. Mm -hmm. And through IVF, who's so supportive, um, I did all my own injections, but he was there every single time, you know, saying how such a good job I was doing. Um, so I think that sort of did bring us um, a lot closer. Mm-hmm. Um, with friends, I don't think it has impacted that much. I mean, I probably, my social life probably has, has been affected by it because, um, you know, on the drugs you just feel so gross and you're always going to get a blood test or scan. Um, and then you know, if you do a fresh transfer and it's successful, then you're pregnant and then you feel like crap all the time. Well, that was my experience anyway. Um, But a lot of my close friends actually at my work, so going to work is a really good escape from it all because you can just go to work, have fun with your friends, talk to them about everything, and I found that quite helpful. Yeah. I think it's... um. Thank you so much for bringing up the sex thing. You know, like, I know that's really, that's really, um, it's a hard thing to talk about. And I don't, like, I, you know, a lot of people haven't sort of mentioned it. Um, I feel like it definitely affected Ezra's and mine's sex life. You know, like, just like you said, it for us, it sort of lost its purpose as soon as we sort of found out. And like you said, it became a chore you know, in the lead up to finding out we couldn't have children. And then afterwards it was kind of like, all right, well, it's lost its purpose and we lost all our vigor with it. Um, yeah. I think that's really important aspect to sort of talk about and again, normalize because, you know, it's going to wax and wane normally, but yeah, a lot of people haven't mentioned it. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's, it's definitely something that does happen. I think maybe it should be talked about uh, a little bit more because um, it does really impact you know, your intimacy and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of hard to go through um, fertility treatment, like you said, you know, like it can impact your social life and things like that because if you're going through that cycle of trying for a baby and, and especially in your instance where you've, um, you know, you've lost a couple of pregnancies as well, like you feel down and you feel flat so you want to stay home and order in and sort of – yeah, you lose sort of that, that flow of life because it becomes about something else, you know, like having a baby. And um, you become focused on that rather than other things. And I think, too, when you're not on the same page as your friends, it can be quite hard to sort of navigate those friendships at the same time as while well. you're going through something that's a, that's traumatic for you. Um, again, I think that was a really important aspect, you know, just to sort of find that balance. It's really difficult. Yeah, it can be. And exactly what you just said, you know, when you're feeling down, all you want to do is just go home, do something for yourself, get Uber Eats and, you know. Whack your trackies on. that you probably shouldn't eat. Yeah. Yeah, and chuck Netflix on and just bury yourself in a haze yeah, of Tiger sure. King. Yeah. Um, Tiff, did you want to ask any questions? Um, I think I covered the ones that I had that if you haven't already asked. Cool. Um, so basically, uh, what's some of the worst advice or, or comments that you've received going through your fertility journey? Oh, so much. Um, <laughs> oh, go on holiday. 
just relax. <laughs> Sex is the fun part. Um, oh, you know, it'll come. It'll happen. It'll happen when it's meant to happen. Um, you know, just have sex. Just have sex and it will happen. Um, uh, so much. Like, there's just ugh, so much. <laughs> you know, go on a holiday. Oh, you know, you're so relaxed. Do meditation. Do yoga. It's going to happen. Yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. So many things. And even some of that stuff came from my mom. And she really doesn't understand because she, she does now. But, you know, at the beginning when... I had the first miscarriage and, oh, you know, just relax. And we went on holiday last year. Oh, you know, it'll happen on holiday. and It'll happen when you're relaxed. And I think she didn't understand the mental toll that it will take. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes on you. So, um, yeah, just the normal typical things that people tell anyone that's going through infertility. <laughs> Yeah, it just seems to be a handbook of the same things over and over again, doesn't it? Like, oh, you know. I think so, yeah. And then you hear about the IVF unicorns and, you know, the urban legend of so-and-so's partner, Mrs. Cousin, got pregnant after trying for, with IVF and then falling yeah. naturally. Yeah, or, and... oh, it'll happen the month before you start IVF. I guarantee it happened to me. It happened to <sighs> so-and-so's cousin's sister, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah, it's just the the repertoire of people who haven't, they, they don't know what to say. It's just sort of the same record over and over again. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah. thanks for nothing. <laughs> yeah, you kind of just learn how to go, oh, yeah, okay, thanks. thanks. Sort of, yeah. you know, I always think of um, the penguins in Madagascar and they're like, smile and wave. That's sort of what you have to do. <laughs> Um, when people say that stuff to you. That's a really beautiful visual um, to think about. (laughs) Penguins riding the waves, yeah. Like, I just sort of lock eyes with Ezra and just think, for fuck's sake, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) shut up, you know, in my head and then just smile and nod, you know. Thank you for all of that unwarranted advice. Yeah, thanks for that. I'll take it on board for sure. Um. Just to backtrack a little bit, I just remembered another question that I had, Um, if you don't mind. You said you went to, um, in Victoria, it was a legal requirement to do a counselling session Mm -hmm. um, prior to commencing IVF treatment. Um, In that session, did they at all talk about the emotional toll that it potentially would take on mental health and things like that? Or was it just purely legally, like you said, um, if you passed away, what would happen to your embryos and things like that? There was a little bit of that. So she started off by asking us how long we've been together, why we, why we want to start IVF, how long we've been trying for. Um, and then it was sort of more legal stuff, but she did say, you know, um, there's no guarantees with IVF, but I did feel like it was a lot more sort of just like a box-ticking exercise rather than um, actually like a counselling appointment, like in mm-hmm. like brackets, you know, like counselling appointment. Yeah. Um, they kind of skimmed the surface of that sort of stuff. It wasn't um, really talked about too much. With my clinic, I'm sure a lot of other clinics, they do provide you with free counselling if, you know, throughout your cycle or if you have um, failed cycles and that sort of stuff, which is good, but I sort of expected a little bit more from the counselling appointment. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so she didn't really talk about any strategies that you guys can utilize to remain connected and, you know, how to take care of yourself, like self-care and things like that during the treatment. No, not really. Okay. It's so, I just find that really interesting because, you know, I mean, with my clinic, we have, they have psychologists available, but I've had a look on their website and they're not even um, fertility psychologists. So they're not specializing in fertility treatment per se. Um, And we've not seen them once. So um, I have my own psychologist that I go to see outside of the clinic, but just the approach to mental wellness while going through fertility treatment, I find is very interesting to me because there's, you know, great, you have, you have to sort of create your own support system rather than being, um, it provided and easily accessed for you, I suppose. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You do have to create your own support system because like the clinics are really good, but the counseling available is not where it probably should be with IVF. And I think there should be a lot more around that because IVF is such a big emotional toll and I know we were really lucky to get you know to get it on our first go but I just can't imagine going through you know a lot of cycles and not having that support through all of that Mm -hmm. yep and it's it's kind of hard too when you're in a thick of IVF treatment um, and obviously, depending on who you are as a person and things like that. But if you aren't telling people, and if you are, and even just recognizing when you need the help yourself, it's really hard. Um, it is, yeah. Yeah, to work through that as well. So, yeah, that was one aspect I thought, oh, you know, I might ask about that. That was really interesting. Um, so, basically, if, you know, what advice would you give to people, um, friends or family, so that they could support people that they know going through fertility treatment more or better? Or what would you tell them or what could you recommend for them to do? I think just being there for them. So just, you know, texting them, hey, do you want to have a wine? Or, um, or you know, maybe not a wine if you can't drink. Or, you know, catch up with coffees or lunches or dinners or things like that. Um, or just, you know, come over and play board games, just be with the person. Um, don't try and give advice to the person because it's probably not wanted or needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some advice, if you haven't been through something like that, probably wouldn't be portrayed that well to the person that is going through. So I think just being there. Um, a lot of my friends just kept texting me throughout. Hey, how you going? You know, um, you know, asking me what I'm, like where I'm up to on my cycle um, and treatment, and having that support and my friends being generally interested in what was happening to me um, really did help me, and I didn't feel as alone in all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's important, not feeling. And being um, emotionally supported as well as physically, yeah. I think, is important. Yeah. Um, Tiff, is there anything you would like to add? Um, no, I think covered everything. Yeah, I think. Is there anything you would like to add, um, Emma? Like, what would you say to yourself? Um, oh, sorry. Go, go. <laughs> I just wanted to add, I just feel so grateful that we were able to do IVF when we can, and I, my heart breaks for... Um, everyone that that was meant to do fertility treatment like in the last couple of months and it's been cancelled. So yeah. my heart goes out to every single one of those people mm-hmm. because I know how hard it is to wait 
your time to come up and then for it to suddenly be taken away from you must just be horrible. So honestly, my heart breaks for you. My heart goes out to you. Mm-hmm. It's a shit time. Yeah, I think I was saying that to Ezra the other day that I literally want to cry for these people, you know, and yeah. I spoke to my fertility specialist on Wednesday and I said to him, like, what is going on with this? You know, like, you can't tell people not to fall pregnant. And I know. And in Victoria especially, they've cancelled everything, not just IVF, they've cancelled um, frozen embryo source cycles, they've cancelled IUIs, they've cancelled everything. Like, yeah. everything. It's just crazy. It's Really highlighting this whole COVID thing is really highlighting a lot of deficiencies in our society, I think. It is. Um, yeah, I think that's really it's a really lovely point that you make there. So, um, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Emma. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like listening to the podcast and would like to share your story, we will pop the link in the show notes. Be sure to hit subscribe so when we release new episodes, it lands straight into your listen now. If you could also leave us a review for the show, that would be so appreciated. No words are needed, just stars. If you're on the Apple app, scroll down to the bottom of the podcast page and tap to rate. This makes a massive difference to our show's visibility and helps us to get our show out and about to others experiencing fertility treatment. IVF Tales is an independent production made by Amy and I. Music is by Volet Gilyshenko. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts.